0: I yeah, i
1: Welcome to the Deadhead Cannabis Show. Jim Marty here. I'm here in my barn outside of Longmont, Colorado. Beautiful summer day I'm looking at, and I've got my partner, Larry Mishkin, up in Chicago. How are you doing, Larry?
0: Jim, I'm doing just fine, but I can tell you I would much rather be in the barn. I was just there last week, and uh, boy, oh boy, what an experience that was. It was everything you promised and then some. You know, hopefully uh, someday it'll be one of those places where people, uh, you know, trek out to a shrine to kind of, this is where the uh, Deadhead Cannabis Show started. So, but it's really it, a lot well, of fun and we should all have a man cave like that someday. Thank you again for all your hospitality.
1: It's uh, very comfortable. Uh, yeah, we live out in the country and have a nice barn where I hung up plywood on the walls and I have all my posters from all the shows over the years hung up around the barn. And as I tell people when I take them around, every poster has a story.
0: And maybe, you know what, maybe one day we can do a show and, you know, go around and check out some of the posters and tell the stories behind them. That would be a lot of fun.
1: Yeah, I've got some pretty interesting ones, some pictures I took and others, posters from the 60s. So, anyway, we're here to talk about uh, music and cannabis and politics, anything that uh, comes to mind. Larry was out in Colorado last weekend uh, with his wife, and we got to head up to Red Rocks and saw Tedeschi Trucks. It was a great show. I uh, knew it was going to be a great show because we had a little rain before the show and ended up with a beautiful rainbow right over Red Rocks.
0: Well, you know, you're right, Jim. It, first of all, it was my first time back in 35 years. The last time I had been there was 1984 for the Grateful Dead, And although I've been to Colorado a number of times since then, had just, for some reason, never coordinated it up to be at Red Rocks for any kind of a show. So get to go to the show was great to see you there. Uh, to see Brent Johnson of the Holman Law Group, who's uh, our managing partner there, and spend some time with him, uh, was a wonderful thing. And you, you just kind of go around and everybody's happy to be there and all of that good kind of stuff. And and just for our listeners to know, in our episode next week, we're actually going to spend a few minutes talking about Red Rocks just in general and, and what a great place it is. But for right now, the important thing to say is you know, i got to tell you whether it's at Red Rocks, which, of course, is always going to be great, or you know, in somebody's backyard or in a back alley somewhere. If it's Tedesky Tedeschi truck's playing, I want to be there. And I can't get enough of them. What do you think?
1: I enjoyed the show very much. And keep your eye on the opening act. Married couple, uh, probably in their 30s. Shovels and Rope was their name. And they put on a great opening act, uh, just as a two person band. They played five or six different instruments each, wrote all their own songs. Keep your eye on Shovels and Rope. You'll probably be hearing more about them in the next couple of years.
0: Well, I think you're right. And they actually came out and sang a song or two with uh, Tedeschi Trucks at some point. And that's one thing. Tedeschi Trucks is really good about that, you know, about bringing on their opening act out on the stage to play a song or two with them in their main set. And uh, it's always a lot of fun. And uh, it was great to see those guys out there with them. But for me... What makes Kineski tricks, and I know we touched upon this a little bit last time, but having just seen him, he's fresh in my mind, and I have to say it again, and that's that uh, I just don't think there's a better guitar player alive than Derek Trucks right now. You know, and that's just my opinion, and you know I, I can't base it on anything other than my subjective set of ears and you know, the other people that I listen to, but I think I have a pretty you know broad spectrum of, of music that I listen to, jam band music and guitar players and things like that. And, and for me, at least, what it is is it, it's different sounds and the different ways he fills the holes while he's going along that, and just drops things in right where they need to be. And if you watch him, it's effortless, right? It's like a, a, a great athlete who just does it while all the rest of us take lessons all of our lives to learn how. And he just stands up there and just has his own very unique style. And boy, I just got the most of the night for me is spent watching him and and the only one I feel sorry for is his wife, because she's such a tremendous musician, singer, guitar player. And she was in top form, as always, uh, hitting those high notes that she really had to hit. And by God, is she a good guitar player, too, huh?
1: Yes, I enjoyed the show very much. I thought Derek Trucks put on a, a great performance. His guitar sounded crystal clear. And all in all, it was a wonderful show, Went with some family at our usual great time at Red Rocks
0: yes yes it was um and if any of the listeners out there have never quite made it out to it to the truck show uh, that is a band that i wholeheartedly recommend really to anybody uh, you don't even have to be a big time rock and roll fan um but it helps right when they kick into uh eric and the dominoes keep on growing and half the crowd goes wild and half the crowd isn't sure what it is but by the end of the song they're going wild too that's just great and you know, of course, there's just so much history steeped in that, right? With uh, Eric's uncle Butch being the drummer uh, for the Almonds and the Almonds being the birth of Dwayne, and Dwayne playing in uh, uh, Derek and the Dominoes with Eric Clapton, and there's just there's so much musical royalty built up there. And I can't think of anybody in the world who would be, be out there playing those lead guitar licks better than Derek Trucks, and he's and he's got the slide going, but. We could talk about him all day, and there's lots of other stuff to talk about. So uh, why don't we shift gears over to the marijuana? Yeah.
1: Now, Keep On Growing, that's an Almond Brothers song, right?
0: Keep On Growing is, a, I believe, it, a Derek and the Dominoes song. It was on the uh, Layla album.
1: Right, that's right. Eric Clapton.
0: Yep. Now, I'll tell you something about Keep On Growing, because since this is the Deadhead Cannabis Hour, after all, I was at the Greek theater shows in 1985. It was the Dead's 20th anniversary. And they came out, uh, they did three shows out there at the Greek. If you haven't seen them at the Greek theater, that's like maybe my second favorite place to see them behind Red Rocks. And I've actually seen them at the Greek theater, I think, three or four times. Uh, But it's up on the Berkeley campus, and it's got a similar type of bowl, but it's built like a Roman type of amphitheater. And, And above the bowl, there's a nice hill. And if you're all the way up at the top, you can see the clock tower, and you and you can see San Francisco, and it's, it's it's really tremendous. And and we were there the first night. I was there with this large group of my college friends, and everybody was certainly in the right frame of mind to be seeing a show uh, in, in those surroundings. Uh, they came out at the beginning of the show to Sgt. Pepper's 20 years ago today. Uh, they were cruising through the first set, and all of a sudden they lost power. Hmm. And the power went out. Everybody was just kind of sitting there wondering what happens next. I, I'd never seen anything like it. And at some point, after a little while, they got it going again. They said, sorry about that. They came out and they kicked in to keep on growing. And it was one of those moments I remember back, you know, when everything about the dead was, for me, still just like, not that it isn't today, but wow, what could they ever possibly do? And they kicked into the song, keep on growing, which was one of my favorite Eric and the Domino songs and one of my favorite rock songs, period. And we just all... We're losing it and thinking this is how, – how could you be – want to be anywhere else other than in this place right here? <laughs> look at all this – you look out over the bay in San Francisco. There's millions of people out there. Why aren't they here with us listening to this great music? So at any rate, it's, it's a tremendous tune.
1: So moving on to some political cannabis things happening this week, uh, happened this week. So uh, Missouri applications are due here in the next couple of weeks. My firm, Bridge West, has been working on some Missouri applications. It's a point system, so we're doing everything we can to score high on points. But, Larry, you had some points you wanted to make. I have some points that we want to talk about the fairness of a point system for, well, in Missouri, it's a medical model, but other states, it's full adult use. And, Larry, you had some points you wanted to make.
0: I do. I just really briefly, because I, I'm, I'm glad you mentioned Missouri, Jim, because there, there really is a lot going on there. It's an exciting time. Uh, I know you and I have talked, and of course, Bridge West, uh, being one of the industry leaders that it is, uh, is getting itself very involved there. The Holman Law Group is representing six groups. I'm representing one of them, but our attorney, Peter Andreoni, who works in our Kansas City office, is picking up five applications. And we're all very excited. He's a great attorney. It's a great opportunity. And we're really, really excited to see Missouri uh, come online and be able to join us that way.
1: Yes. Well, we all hope that our group get licenses, but I just wanted to mention, I think there's yeah. going to be about 10 times as many applicants as there are licenses. So Missouri is going to have 60 cultivation, 190 or 195 retail, yeah. and extraction somewhere in the middle. So very limited licenses for a, a state of about somewhere between 6 and 7 million people, I believe. that's going to be a lot more licenses
0: than we're going to have in Illinois to get started in our adult use program. And we have a lot more people in Missouri. So in some respects, I, you know, compared to the way Illinois medical program came online, I look at Missouri as being light years ahead of us, (laughs) Uh, you know, much bigger, much more. uh, Yeah.
1: It should be a good program. Now the people are spending a lot of money. I,
0: I have no doubt. Now focusing up here on Illinois, because this is, this is the one that's going on. Um, Our licenses are going to start dropping here in the next couple of months. And every single person who comes in my office who wants to talk about this, you know, we have to start off with the cost and we have to start off with this, you know, very important uh, analogy. And I think we've raised it before, Jim, but it's important to keep raising it, which is if I want to go open a McDonald's and call McDonald's franchise office, they're going to tell me it's a $50,000 franchise fee. It's going to cost you another 50 to fix up the restaurant. We'll help you with that. And it's going to cost you another 50 for upfront incidentals and everything else. You might say, gee, 150000 is a lot of money, but at least you know that if you put up the money and you do what you're supposed to do, you're going to have a McDonald's to operate. And whether it succeeds or not, nobody can promise you, but at least you're going to have that opportunity. in a competitive state license system like this, which is basically done you know, by competitive applications, so it's not really quite fair to say lottery, although that's what it feels like. People are going to put up two or three hundred thousand dollars to prepare their applications, and countless number of hours of personal time. And at the end of that, your odds are maybe one in ten, as you're pointing out, in terms of what the odds in some of these you know regions can be. Uh, and typically, in a competitive application state, they'll do it. You know, they'll divide the state up into districts. So, figuring your best scenario, you're looking at a one to one. If there's only one other person, that's still only fifty percent chance going in. Uh, that you're going to spend all of this money and that you're going to walk away completely empty-handed not get your money back. So, you know, the question everyone wants to ask is, well, how do we know? Is this fair? How do we know who's going to get picked? How is this going to work? You know, a lot of people feel that it's too subjective. Certainly when we went through the program on the medical level here in Illinois, a lot of people were disappointed that the selection process wasn't more transparent. You know, unfortunately, given the reputation that Illinois walks around with sometimes, the thought of, you know, some extra political input thumb on a scale type of thing is more than just, uh, you know, a thought. You know, some people really look at it as as an actual possibility. I'm not saying it is, but I am saying that, you know, it's it's a difficult concept battle in terms of trying to get people to think that this is really the way to go. And the question becomes, why can't it just be a free market? It would just like anything else, like our hemp market right now, if you want to get a hemp license, you can get it. The only thing you have to decide is, Given the number of people in the program, is it worth it for me to be one more person out there? And I think a lot of people would like to see that happen with marijuana. And, you know, the question is is that viable? Can it work, especially in a state like Illinois that's just entering into it? What are your thoughts on that, Jim?
1: It's a balance because you don't want to go to the other extreme and have unlimited license like we have here in Colorado and, and Washington, Oregon, uh, where you have overproduction. I was flipping through a cannabis magazine on the airplane this week, and I saw a little blurb that said it would take 10 years to absorb the inventory that Oregon had on the shelves on January 1st of this year. So wow. while limited licenses do cause some disruption in the marketplace, unlimited licenses can cause their own version of headaches. As you know, to build out an industrial-sized cultivation center, it's, you know, the better part of $10 million or more. Um, then you add an extraction Perfect. lab to that, another couple of million. You know, for those kind of investments, you want to have some assurance that it's going to be a stable market for your product. So it is a balancing act. As I said, you have problems with unlimited licenses. Uh, but yeah, a lot of political who you know, what you know. We've seen that in various states where it doesn't hurt at all to have a lot of political connections with your state. That definitely increases your chances of getting a license. And some of these relationships go back decades and even generations where you know, the person's father was active in politics in a particular community, and therefore it translates on to their grown children, but now they have political connections to their family. So it happens. It's not the best of circumstances. I think one counterbalance to that is if, and I think most of the states allow small home growths. So, if, you know, you don't want to participate in the state regulated system. You don't want to pay the prices and taxes here in Colorado. Every married couple can grow six plants each. That's 12 plants. So there's a, a lot of ways to address that. Um, I always like to tell the story about how what happened in Colorado will probably will never happen again. Where we had over a thousand marijuana businesses in Colorado in 2009 and 2010. With virtually no regulation. Uh, you could rent a storefront and start buying and selling uh, marijuana through your storefront. And then we got our regulations in the late summer and early fall of 2010. So that'll never happen again. Today, you have to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars and hire lawyers and accountants and put together eight inches high documents on the table uh, to even be considered to have a license. But it's a fast moving ball. We'll see what, see how it plays out. Yeah, I the, you know, because it's fascinating
0: to me, you know, and, and on the one hand, I, you're right. I mean, you know, the statistic that always sticks with me uh, and you know who knows how accurate any of this is, so I can't vouch for it. But I hear it a lot is that three fifths of California's animal annual marijuana output is winds up getting sold outside of the state. And, you know, that obviously creates problems in a number of different ways, not the least of which is. If you happen to be a cultivator in a state like, say, Illinois, where that's, you know, has an adult use program that's just coming online, and even though we certainly have some existing cultivators who are doing a very, very good job and you know, getting uh strong praise for the products that they're creating, there's either a perception and whether it's real or just imagined, that marijuana from places like California just tends to be stronger, better, more enjoyable, whatever the case may be. And if coming from a state where because of the, the glut, if you will, the price has been driven down considerably. And so if I'm an Illinois cultivator, I'm not happy about the fact that I've got to compete with all of this marijuana that's pouring out of California, you know, and making its way across the country. And I think, you know, that that's probably something that for a long time is going to keep laws in place about not necessarily being able to bring product legally across state lines. Right. But it's it's a really, really interesting thing to think about uh, in terms of how do we manage that market to make sure then that even the people that do get in have an opportunity to survive.
1: Yes. Another interesting phenomena that's being driven by the cell phone technology is pretty, pretty much any major city in the United States, whether it has legal marijuana or not, uh, you can have a delivery service bring cannabis that's packaged just like it would come from a dispensary delivered to your hotel or your home. And how to stop that with the proliferation of cell phones is, I I don't know. The legal cannabis industry just has to compete on quality, organic products, price, quality, convenience. Those are the touch points that illegal cannabis can have that will give them a competitive advantage with the black market. But I think, unfortunately, the black market is here. And like I said, it's morphed into this high-tech black market now that I don't know how law enforcement w- would ever even keep up with that because there's such a proliferation of they could spend a lot of resources, you know, busting one delivery service and 10 more are going to jump up in its place. So very interesting phenomena. And the um, legal cannabis industry really has to focus on what its advantages are over the black market. Yeah. All very interesting
0: there's really a lot to talk about here. And, and unfortunately, I don't think we have time today to get into it. And this is probably something we should pick up at another point down the road. And what I want to do between now and then is take a look and see, you know, what's happened in certain states with black market, you know, versus other states that have gone, you know, to adult use and how that ties into pricing and excise tax and overall output. And uh, I, I think that's something that that should still be worth uh, exploring because, you know, ultimately, at the end of the day, marijuana shouldn't be different than anywhere else. And while I'm sure there's still plenty of illegal stills out there making whiskey or whatever, that clearly is of no concern to the, to the alcohol industry. And so I'm curious as to, uh, you know, at what point you have to go, go to and get to before you can really illuminate the black market as a, as a real threat.
1: Sure. As I like to say, at the end of Prohibition, there was a lot of stills out in the woods. And today we all go to the liquor store. So there is really no black market for liquor. <laughs> well, there was certainly a robust black market during prohibition. So we'll see how exactly. it pans out. And um, yep. the other and the cities so, and counties and states have a big role to play too. They think that you know they can put a forty percent tax on the ca- at the cash register like they have in California. That's what drives people to the black market. So they also have to be reasonable and realize they'll collect more taxes with lower taxes, and they will with high taxes. that drives people away.
0: Correct. That's, that's an, another excellent point. And that is one we should, again, revisit on how states are running their programs and why some are more successful than others. Yep. What I wanted to do now, though, is switch back to this uh, musical topic for a minute before we run out of time yep. um, and really address the issue here of the days between. And in our last show, uh, as our producer, Dan, thank you, Dan Humiston, was nice to point out to us uh, before we we started today. We did touch on that last time, and I think we did kind of in the sense, Jim, that we were looking forward to it coming up in a couple of days. But like anything that you anticipate, you know, you've got other things going on and you can't really focus on it, and you go see a great Tedeschi truck show. But at least personally, when I get to these eight days, you know, my way of uh, celebrating, if you will, is that I pretty much limit myself 24-7 to Grateful Dead music with a lot of Jerry. Of course, listening to the SiriusXM Dead channel makes that easy because they're they're broadcasting a lot of it with great interviews, too, with Garcia family members and stuff that are really worth listening to.
1: Trixie Garcia has really emerged as a spokeswoman to the Jerry Garcia estate and getting the recordings out. I've been enjoying listening to full Jerry Garcia shows uh, from the Keystone back I just listened to one the other day. It was uh, December 31st, yeah. 1975. Great show, great yep. quality. So it's good that more and more of the Jerry Garcia band shows are getting out there. It is, but, and, but what it really does for me, you know,
0: we for the last couple of weeks we had been kind of, you know, taking our way <laughs> through the various band members and, you know, who's essential and who's not essential. And it, I suppose on a certain level it's a silly exercise because without any one of them, there really wouldn't have been the Grateful Dead that, we all do in love and while they may have had somebody else there who who did it these were the guys that did and you know in my mind and memory they're always there but you know as i had pointed out and you know certainly others have shared the same sentiment on any given night i think i might have been just as happy to go see a a jerry garcia band show and really just know that i was getting 100 percent jerry all night and and there was just something about him and that i'm not talking about elevating him like to the level of a god or I think sometimes, you know, they said he was afraid to talk at the microphone during shows because, you know, the deadheads would hang on every word that came out of his mouth kind of thing. But I just looked at him as somebody who was such a musician who knew how to communicate with his audience in a way and on a level that up to that point really had never been accessed. And, you know, he he certainly has opened the door for many, many others, uh, you know, for Anastasio and. Jimmy Herring and, you know, on and on and on, so many of them that we, you know, don't have time to go through them all, who have all stepped up and turned themselves into tremendous jam band guitarists. But, you know, I, I think it was really Jerry who led the way. And by my way of thinking, and again, it's just me, he was my guitarist from my era. While these other guys are all great, there's something that's not quite there. And it's almost how do you describe it with an instrument but it's almost like an emotional feeling that came out of jerry's guitars while he was playing do you ever hear
1: that oh absolutely in his voice too so an interesting story yeah. is the reason we have the jerry garcia band and so many recordings of jerry garcia band shows is you know in their heyday in the 70s and 80s the grateful dead played about 70 shows a year that was just not enough for jerry he used to say that uh you know, he, went, he, he couldn't go three or four weeks without the performance where he loses chops. So thus the Jerry right. Garcia band became an outlet for him to play locally. And he played a lot of shows at the Keystone in San Francisco, which I don't even know if the Keystone is still there. But and I've never been there, but I heard it's a very tiny bar and he would play there a lot on Sunday nights. And, you know, only in a big city like San Francisco would you have a, a show start at 11 o'clock at night on a Sunday night so pretty much cuts out anybody who has to work on monday morning and then you know well, jerry maybe garcia New Orleans, but you're right other than that <laughs> maybe vegas but yeah they yeah. play from 11 o'clock at night until three or four in the morning and be you know be daybreak when they'd be packing up so um that's why we're fortunate to have all those jerry garcia band and legion of mary steve yeah. uh, big steve was telling that story how uh, one night at the keystone when they were under the flag of Legion of Mary, a couple of nuns showed up before the show and oh. <laughs> informed uh, Steve parish that uh, they, in fact, were the Legion of Mary, Mary and they would like it very much if uh, the Jerry Garcia band would quit going under the band name Legion of Mary. So that's a pretty funny uh-huh. one because, and Steve, big Steve, said, What are two nuns doing in this place? Jim? I don't know if you have any of the, uh, the
0: vinyl that they put out from those shows at Keystone with Jerry and Merle Saunders, but the one that we had when we were in college, and at that time we didn't even realize how many others there were, when you opened up the double album, the photo on the inlay side was a whole group sitting back in what probably was the, the performer's dressing room for the Keystone, and there's a huge group of people sitting around in a circle, smoking a joint. And the picture shows a joint. I can't remember if, it, if the nun is handing the joint to somebody or if somebody's handing the joint to the nun. But until right then, now, I had never heard the story that you just said about the Legion of Mary and nuns. And I'm wondering if they made peace with them in the back and everybody walked out with a smile on their face.
1: Well, I believe the upshot was that's when they became the Jerry Garcia band and dropped the Legion of Mary.
0: Understood. That's great. Now, one other thing that you said that you know I, I want to touch on. It's just as important as you know, we could talk about Jerry and his guitar playing and his banjo playing and his steel guitar playing and all of that, you know, for a long, long time. But you mentioned his voice. And the truth is that you're absolutely right. And, you know, to me, that's what always differentiates. And, you know, even if you have a John Mayer up there and he's you know playing the hell out of a Jerry tune and really doing a great job, but he steps up to the microphone and sings, it's not Jerry. And, and Jerry... These were his songs, you know, the the emotion that came out of his voice, all of it. But, you know, two really interesting examples is there's an early version of The Dead playing Promised Land with Jerry taking the lead vocals instead of Bobby. And when I heard it, it really, you know, really kind of turned me upside down a little bit because you're so used to hearing it sung one way. And then as well, there's a version, it might even be on one of these Keystone albums of Jerry the Jerry Garcia band playing When I Paint My Masterpiece, which again is a song that Bobby typically sang in concert with the dead, and just to hear the difference, like almost a different song to hear Jerry sing it versus the way Bobby sings it, not to say that it's necessarily better than Bobby, I mean Bobby had his own signature way with those tunes and they were great, but when Jerry sang it, you know, it just kind of almost felt like something completely different to hear his voice on it. And one yeah. other thing I'll throw out there while yeah, while I you can. and Then
1: I'll wrap it the, up with something.
0: The, yep. There's a, when they came out with the, the box set of the first original Grateful Dead albums, of Roses or something, whatever they called it.
1: And, and it was probably like the
0: first, six, right. Well, no, no, this was a box set. So it was like the first, you know, eight albums that they did on a CD, you know, but then on the end of each one, they added on some bonus tunes live tunes that weren't originally on the albums when they came out. And on the Skull and Roses album, they added a couple of songs, and two of them were from the dead playing somewhere in Manhattan at some tiny little theater in 70 or 71. And one of them is a song called I'm a Hog for You Baby. And if you haven't ever heard it, just go Google it and listen to it and listen to the dead do it. But The thing that was unique about it, and that People really loved was that Jerry and Pigpen sang it together, and they harmonize and they're singing it all the way through, and they're kind of they're clearly having fun with it. And um, it, 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 if you haven't heard it, it's killer. You got to hear Jerry and Pigpen singing "I'm a Hog for You, Baby" from Manhattan huh. in '70 70 or '71.
1: I may have that. I have to check it out. So to wrap it up, in the mail this week I got my. Volume thirty-one of Dave's Picks, and it's a show from '79, yeah, which was the first year of me being on the bus. That's the first shows I saw were in January and May of '79, and um, but there is a promised land. It's the uh, second song on disc one, and I believe Jerry does sing that. I just listened to it the first time today.
0: Yeah, it's wonderful, and I just got my Dave's Picks thirty-one, and you know it's a great thing. And if you haven't ever picked up any of the Dave's Picks. them up because they're i mean there's millions of great dead shows but he just has an ear for pulling out Uh you know really really special shows and this one is no example let me i just want to say this and wrap up with the days between by saying that you know we can never talk enough about jerry but we will keep talking about him because there's so many other great things to talk about but that's why it's just great to have one week where we can really stop and take a little bit of time and you know just go back and remember him so haven't said that, Jim. It's a pleasure as always, and I will uh, look forward to our next show.
1: Great way to wrap it up. Over and out, everybody.